Hi, my name is John Light, and I've spent over 20 years working throughout all corners of the recruiting world. Our podcast, Drowning in the Tech Talent Pool, is a resource to help you stay afloat and get ahead of your competition. Hi, and welcome to Drowning in the Tech Talent Pool. I am your host, John Light, president of Sabretooth Recruiting, and joining us in this episode is Dr. Anthony Rem, or he just goes by Tony, which I'm grateful for. Tony, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you, John. That's, uh, it's a pleasure to be here and, and be a part of this show and podcast and just ready to uh, have a great conversation. Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to it because what people may not know about you, besides being an author, published, have books out in circulation, uh, you're also somebody who brings a high level of expertise in AI and knowledge management to the table. And I, I wonder if you could, by way of introduction, maybe give a synopsis about yourself and what got you to where you are today and, and, and where your real interests lie when it comes to this, I guess you could say, technological revolution with AI that we're going through nowadays. I have a passion, I developed a passion for computer science, uh, computers back in high school and evolved in my undergrad at uh, Purdue University, where I had a double major in kind of computer science and, and marketing. And it just went from there. I got the uh, opportunity to have positions in IT. I started at the bottom, uh, developer, and moved through the ranks over the years. The one thing about technology is that it's always changing, as you know. Right. And as someone in the field, you always need to continue to hone your skills, get better at what you want to do. And I found that, okay, if I'm going to always be attending some training session or some uh, course or uh, learning something, I might as well get a formal education within the uh, technology space as well. I started, uh, well, I enrolled and, and got accepted, of course, at the, uh, the master's program, master's in computer science at DePaul University. Where at that time, I also found that the computer science curriculum offered a variety of, of, of uh, specializations. And at uh -huh. DePaul in Chicago at that time offered uh, artificial intelligence. And this was back in the, the mid 80s. And you can imagine what that looked like. And so that, that's where a, my passion lot of, for AI a, started. A lot of theory, I'm sure. Well, yeah, I mean, because you didn't really understand all the aspects of it, but yeah, a lot of theory, a lot of foundational knowledge, but a lot of exercise, a lot of practical uh, use, because we, we develop programs, we learn Prolog and Lisp, that's languages back in the day that we, we uh, wrote different sy systems with, uh, expert systems, uh, developed neural networks at that time, uh, and, and really taking a deeper dive in into the different aspects of AI, because AI is a uh -huh. multidisciplinary science. It includes robotics, uh, machine learning, which has a lot of subfields, machine learning, natural language processing, uh, vision, virtual reality. Those, those are some of the subfields. As the AI started to evolve from what my focus was expert systems and neural networks, uh -huh. I later got involved with something called knowledge management. It's, it's, I was 10 years into the AI piece, where I got introduced to knowledge management, I said, well, wow, this puts a, this is all knowledge management and AI is all about knowledge. It's all about insights, all about understanding how to capture that and, and make it available across your organization or to multiple people. And so 
I dived into knowledge management. I was just really fell in love with the with the discipline and brought a lot of technical expertise to knowledge management because knowledge management is all about people pro- and process and then technology as an enabler. Okay. I later got back into AI and this was like for, for knowledge management from around 1998, 99 uh, to about 2010, 2012, I'm just knee deep in the knowledge management. And then I started to see where AI was getting some traction. Mm-hmm. And some of my, my friends, my colleagues said, oh, Tony, um, AI is, is, com- is making a comeback. And said, it says, well, you, you should be, you know, really, um, opportunity to really get involved with that. So I slowly started to get back involved with AI and specifically from the areas where I had expertise and, and expert systems and neural networks. But AI, with the advent of big data, mm-hmm. machine learning became the, um, the go-to technology in AI. Then, as you know, it has evolved over a number of years, and now we have this, the push for generative AI from a, from a text to image to video and voice, uh, and which is really taking the market by storm and, 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 and companies like OpenAI, which backed by Microsoft, you have Google with their Gemini um, offering, and Bard uh, is also an, another generative AI platform. And they got so many uh, that uh, startups right. that are in, in that area, in that space now, is growing like crazy. So no, they're, my love they're bubbling of up technology, and specifically AI, evolved through that. Well, let's talk about part of that because you're also a published author, and I know you've got a book that's coming out soon. And I know you bring a level of expertise into the space that most people either A, don't have themselves, or B, don't even have direct access to. Share a little bit about what you've done in terms of, of writing and, and topics and what would pique someone's interest, especially with your new offering that's coming out. My first book, which is in 2005, is UML, Unified Modeling Language for Developing Knowledge Management Systems. And what that book focused on is actually how do you model knowledge, different aspects of of, of knowledge and how uh, people think. You have decision trees, you uh-huh. have this procedural type of knowledge, but how do you capture that in a model perspective to then be used in a, a at that time, a knowledge management system? But if you fast forward to, to now, what I wrote in 2005, you can see as a foundational piece for knowledge graphs, something like okay. knowledge graphs have taken that science to another level. Uh, so my, 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 and I'm going to skip over my latest offering in my book that I've, I've, I found really, uh, something I really wanted to put together. It's, uh, essential topics in artificial intelligence where I take, uh, a dive, deep dive into 10 relevant, uh, what I believe is relevant topics in AI. And uh-huh. it's, uh, large language models, artificial general intelligence. It, it includes ethics and governance and, and aspects about the future of, of AI. So, I was very fortunate to have colleagues contribute to that future of AI chapter Mm -hmm. by having that type of uh, touch point with industry experts really helped uh, evolve that, uh, that, that book. My other two books was uh, before that uh, essential topics in information architecture, because that talks about the layer of uh, architecture that enables content to be consumable and to be leveraged on a platform. Maybe okay. you, you go to Amazon, maybe you go to some other two other site. It enables you to have better organization structure of content and knowledge. So mm-hmm. you can actually search for it better. 
organized so you can navigate to it better. And so it, it includes metadata and, and taxonomy elements to uh, enable that content to be uh, surfaced and used in a more uh, consumable manner. And of course, one of the, my, my favorite publication that I spent three years writing, uh, it came out in, in 2016, is uh, Knowledge Management and Practice. And where I dived okay. into several industries where I, I've worked from healthcare to insurance to financial to uh, military, and it dives into those aspects of those different industries with adding some details and, and, and depth on uh, search, uh, understanding search, understanding information architecture, like I was uh, talking about earlier, uh, strategies for, for, for knowledge management. So it, it's a, uh, I think, a go-to resource for people practicing knowledge management and people wanting to know more about knowledge management. So I really enjoyed putting time into writing that book. So let me ask you this. <clears throat> if somebody wanted to pick up one of your books, uh, I'm assuming you're on Amazon and they could just look yes. you up and, yes. and pull it up. And, pull it. When does, and when does the latest one hit? Uh, the latest one, Essential Topics in Artificial Intelligence, will be available in December as a um, ebook, a Kindle book, and okay. hardcover sometime middle of January 2024. Okay. So. Yeah. So by the time this podcast drops... Uh, out to the public. Anybody who's listening to this can grab that book or any of the other books, e either you know by, right. by a digitally or or hard copy. And I got to tell you, at my age, I like a good hard copy book in the hands versus a Kindle. Oh, oh yeah, you oh, know. Yeah. And, I, and I understand not yeah. everybody does, but you know, as as I was listening to you, and it's it fascinates me to think about all the work that has gone into where we are today that has been happening in, in years past, wherein what we're really trying to do is put how you think into a structure on paper, you know, and for basic stuff, because we don't think about what it takes, for example, to do minor tasks that our body almost does autonomously, like breathing, right. for example, or blinking or winking, I know people who can't wink. They cannot physically close one eye. They have to close both. I mean, you just think about all the things that go through your brain or when you're growing and developing on from childhood through into adulthood that have to happen in order for you to be able to process and do these things. And you're in a time which I know people today think, well, it was the Stone Ages back in the 80s and 90s. No, it yeah. wasn't. <laughs> we all thought the people back in the 60s and 70s were in a Stone Age. Because all the people in the right. 50s were in a stone age, and that's where really most of the theory around AI came into being was Started. back in the 50s. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, absolutely. It, it's just fascinating to me because we're talking about breaking down sometimes very minute things, very small things. And it's not the same as if you look at instructions or knowledge of how do you make a PB&J. Okay. Well, I mean, we can, and we can fight crunchy or creamy. We can have arguments about, you know, <laughs> strawberry, grape, whatever. White bread, wheat bread, pumpernickel, whatever it person oh, yeah. thinks. Yeah. But if you ever think about what goes into producing a PBNJ, assuming you have the ingredients you want, right? And the the, uh, the yeah. thought and the knowledge and how to spread things and how to do this. And I mean, it's it's fascinating. And now we've reached a point where computing power and capability allows us to teach a machine. Effectively, right. at some point, it'll make PB&Js PB the way we want them every time. And, and it's just extending that ability to a 
robot or some some system that mm-hmm. will create create the, the put the food together for you. As long as it has, like you say, it has the ingredients, it'll put the food together for you. We are heading in that direction, right? So where the the house is on automatic, and you know, yeah. uh, IoT enabled appliances allow those appliances to do things at your command and future applications will uh, enable those appliances like your refrigerator to have sensors to understand, oh, I'm out of milk. I need to order milk. Oh, I'm, I'm out of lunch meat. I'm, oh, I'm out of, uh, you know, certain uh, ingredients you need to, to, to make, uh, make a sandwich or a soup or whatever. And mm-hmm. the, the refrigerator will automatically order that from your nearby grocery store with your credit card and have that delivered to your house. So it's yeah. it's the the infrastructure that we are now kind of putting together to have a, a future where a lot of our machines are doing the work for us. You know, is that good, bad, or uh, what is that? You know, so. That's a relevant question. It'd be good in some aspects when you, you're not able to do those things, but you don't, in my mind, you don't want to have reliance on machines or computers to do everything because that, right. that you become less creative. You become you know, uh, uh, lazy from a mental perspective. You always want to keep your mind sharp and doing things to, that you enjoy uh, from a mental perspective and and not have the computer, you know, come to a place where it does everything for you. Well, I was like, let's talk yeah. about that for a second. Okay. Cause look, you're a college athlete and you understand this. If you spend the entire off season, not dribbling, not shooting, not passing, and you're eating pizza and hanging out, eating wings and pizza, you know, watching film. Yeah. You're going to have some more knowledge about how to play the game. But when it comes time to actually play the game, you're going to fail. Miserably, you know, <laughs> miserably. <laughs> and, you know, I remember, I remember in high school, our, our high school coaches telling us on around May, you know, when we're letting out for the summer and the next time we're really going to be in as a team is going to be two a days. Right. And coach are saying, all right, if you don't get in and lift X number of times a week and do this and do that, you're going to fail. You're going to really be hurting when it come August comes around. Right. And, and we're not going to succeed right. because you, the individual links didn't prepare themselves to be part of the team. I was reading an article the, just earlier this week where the author was putting forth the idea that AI is going to help alleviate wage gaps, compensation gaps between top performers and the bottom echelon of performers. And they weren't talking about necessarily gaps between you know, gender pay gap and this sort of thing, but just in terms of performance, say in a sales organization or some sort of operations. And the point is, is that people who are really good, who are experts in their field, uh, who excel, they don't need AI to do anything for them in particular. It kind of gets in the way at this point. But people in the, say the bottom 20%, if AI can help them get into the middle of the field instead of the bottom of the field, they're kind of closing the pay gap and companies will eventually say, well, I need to hire more of these cheaper people than more of these expensive people and bring average wages down lower and help close the gap from the top down as well. And I remember I was reading that thinking that is a very academic way of isolating a a scenario and looking at it and not taking into account that we all make our own choices. And just because AI does a, a drafts a letter for you or a presentation that doesn't mean you're going to make the choice to really put your own personality, your own touch into it, 
to tailor it for your audience in a way that only you knew intuitively or what your gut's telling you to do. We're still going to make those choices, which causes separation in that. But it struck me to your point just now, reading it is, doesn't it kind of make us lazy to where I don't feel like I need to earn my way into whatever's next to my career, but rather it should just come to me because I can look it up and through open AI or chat or BART or Copilot or whatever. Well, you, you bring some uh, interesting points to this uh, conversation. I believe you will still need subject matter experts in, in the mm -hmm. field to make sure like that letter you, you have chat GPT, whatever craft that it's in the right tone and, and voice and it's, has some of the nuances that you need to need to have in there. So you still need that. What's what's happening with AI tools, so they, they are increasing productivity. And I think people who know how to leverage those tools the the in the in the best way are going to be able to take advantage of that productivity gain with that max productivity gain with AI tools. Right. It's going to be the ones that can use them versus the ones that don't use them as effectively. If you are a person with that that's has that experience, has that knowledge, and don't don't use the AI tools, I, I think you should also use the AI tools to help even increase your productivity and sharpen your skills if that 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 much more. Even though you sit from a perspective of being a, a, a subject matter expert in the area, you also mm -hmm. are improving the tools and help training the tools to be better to to assist folks who are using the tools more more than you are, or more uh, are more essential for their performance. So I still think you're going to need those those subject matter experts. You may not need as much. Each organization needs to make that determination, and each person right. needs to make a decision on how they're going to leverage the tools. The, you know, the best of their ability and the best of the tools ability. The other piece that we don't think about is the ethical piece of this, right? You got to have uh, the ethical use of AI, the, the ethical development and, and, and of AI tools. So, mm -hmm. you know, we got to have make sure they're right and they're, they're delivering ethical and, and reliable insights and knowledge for you. But, but also you want to make sure that if it's going to replace people, that you have a path for people to reskill or upskill in areas where the company will be able to leverage them, where they can be able to be leveraged. So right. it's that aspect of ethics and governance and responsible use and uh, of AI that comes into play as well. So it's, you have right. to think about those things too. I read the synopsis of a study that that stated something like 85 million jobs are going to go away over the next few years related uh, or because of AI, but that there's going to be 96 or 97 million new jobs created as a result of that. And, and I think you're, you're kind of going, we're kind of veering into territory. I know you and I have touched on before, and I know you've put a lot of thought into this. There are going to be a lot of avenues for people to upskill or reskill themselves into. Right. I think, and this is just my opinion. I think when companies are able there is something of an ethical, maybe even a moral obligation to help people right. find options to reskill or upskill in different directions. And I'm not talking about paying for a four-year degree, but get them started on the road to become something different, something more, something novel, something in demand with value. Because I, I don't think it's right to just take value from people and never get back. But I'm, I'm curious to get your thoughts on 
some of the areas, and we don't have to get super specific for, for time's sake, but some of the areas that you see from, from your thought and your, your uh, studies and research that are going to explode with demand for people over the next three to five years as a result of AI, Gen AI specifically, uh, proliferating and being adopted into the marketplace? Wow, that's a, that's a good question. And, and it also depends on the industry you're in, right? So uh-huh. the advent of AI is going to assist in, the, say, in the medical field with, with patient intake or the whole uh, healthcare delivery process. So you're going to need uh, folks that are familiar or understand how to leverage AI from the uh, patient intake through all the aspects of healthcare delivery to patient discharge. So you need AI experts in in those areas that understand how AI works and how the tools work to better uh, improve productivity and, and patient experience from from, mm-hmm. from the, uh, the hospital and, and healthcare perspective. To so one other area, uh, I guess several more, but if you look in the um, legal space, right, for for lawyers and and, and new um, associates coming into law firms, a lot of times they put the new associates into the research area to do uh, research cases and things like that. They help the, the practicing attorneys perform, uh, you know, their, their jobs for their clients, you know, either they're in court or out of court or any type of litigation. Now, the AI tools are such that it can do a lot of the uh, case research for you. And so mm-hmm. from a legal a services perspective, a legal service delivery, you're going to need lawyers or new, new uh, associates coming out of law school to be versed in AI for legal services or AI for law. And I believe a lot, a lot of universities now, law schools are, are having that part, as part of their curriculum, that understanding of AI and AI tools in that specific space in, in, in legal and legal services. So you can go to a lot of the different uh, industries, finance, you can uh, leverage tools to understand, do predictive analysis of trades and understand mm-hmm. what the best course of action is for investments. And so using those tools as a uh, financial planner will help you service your clients better. So it's the it's the industry you're in that's going to be affected in certain ways with AI that you will be able to leverage those tools to do your job better. But you may also need experts in your field that understand AI and how it applies to your field. And so it will open up new opportunities to focus in AI, like AI for for patient care or AI for financial services or AI for legal research, you know, mm-hmm. things like that. You can come into an organization already AI ready and able to do that job because you also have that industry knowledge as well that you bring to the table. I know companies actually look for uh, lawyers that have AI expertise. So, that's not a lot of lawyers that have AI expertise, no. but see that? There's not a, a lot of anybody that, that has AI expertise just yet. I mean, <laughs> if they do, they're they're doing something with it, right? And uh, But you, you right. bring up, you, you mentioned, I think, a couple of things or alluded to a couple of things that are going to be critical and are spaces that people could reinvent themselves in, frankly. One of them is QC, quality control. You know, it's not enough to have an AI that's going to do research. You need to you need to make sure it's good research and it doesn't have drift or hallucinations and that, you know, it is real and makes sense. But there's also the ethics side of it um, when it comes mm-hmm. to compliance and, and ethics and 
already a robust industry out there when you look at, let's just say compliance in general, whether it's audit firms or, or whoever. And we have compliance in, in manufacturing around your ISOs. And, and I mean, we could go right down the thing, IEEE or whoever it is, you and I were talking the other day about- IEEE, yeah. Yeah, they, they're coming out with, you know, this is ethical AI or this AI works in an ethical way, you know, and I think there's a lot underneath the hood on that. So one of the questions I would have, if I was a candidate or an employer, how critical is it to have a robust thought leadership and to get ahead of the, the wave of quality control, if you will, and ethics, ethical AI uh, with AI just really spinning out something new, it seems like, every day? Well, it's, just, it's a couple of things. One, if I'm a consumer of the AI products, I would want the vendor that I'm working with to have a policy about their software and mm -hmm. their, their solutions that is that that really details their ethical uh, AI ethics and governance and responsible use policy. Make sure that that is baked into their their offering. The offering uh, will provide some explainability within the systems to determine okay how does how does that how does that system determine that particular knowledge? How how did we why did we direct the client into certain insights? and have that explainability within the tool to say, we looked at this, 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 and this, to, to, to give that consumer of the AI products a more comfort that the, the AI product is delivering insights that can be trusted. You want a trusted mm -hmm. tool that delivers ethical and correct insights. And so that's why on the other end, you have to have that subject matter expert to understand what they want from the tool. And that comes down to basic, what I call uh, software development one-on-one, is understand the client's requirements. What are your requirements to understand what tools best, best fit your organization and, and business case for using it? And right. so that's the consumer, uh, the organization, and the vendor, right? So it's, it's an, ethical piece of, an ethical piece from the vendor to make sure that it, it fulfills those those uh, ethical challenges may have to meet those and, and requirements and the user uh, understanding what from an ethical perspective that they need from that tool. And so, and then, okay, that's from just, you know, the user community bringing in a vendor's tool. But if you're in, inside right. your organization and you, and you want to develop AI tool, you have to follow the same type of ethical standard. So mm -hmm. usually with a company's risk management area, you can expand your risk management area to include AI's uh, ethical standards. You can even adopt or leverage one of the standards that are out and used today, the IEEE standard, the OECD standard. The uh, U.S. has, uh, you know, White House issued their standard for, for AI or their guidelines around AI. Adopt a, I would, I would suggest adopt a proven standard AI ethics and governance Tailor that for your organization and align it with what your organization wants to, to obtain or, or to achieve from AI. Uh, marry that with your risk and security profile and program that you already have, but have that specific AI piece. And then right. develop uh, requirements from that to understand any AI product that you either build or bring in meets those requirements. Some work that has to be done. But, you know, once you do that, you got to continually monitor the products, monitor the, the AI uh, responses, 
adapt and evolve your own standards to continue to, to meet those challenges. So it's 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 so that's new jobs right there uh, with with, with <laughs> yeah. uh, AI uh, ethics and governance uh, teams. So it's you know it's an ongoing type of uh, opportunity, especially as we evolve and grow AI and, and the use of AI uh, within organizations. Uh, that mm-hmm. that is going to be a, a, a key opportunity for folks to to enter it. So let me ask you this, but I always like as we, as we get toward the end of, of an interview to ask people, what's their passion project? What's something that they put themselves into that, that you know, maybe folks need to hear about, or it's just something that uh, is near and dear to, to their hearts. And so, and I warned you always ask the question, you know, and I, I wanted to know for, for, from you, Tony, what's, what's your, what's your passion project besides writing books that help people who maybe aren't technical understand something technical and relevant? Well, I, I, I've had this project off and on since 2015. The catalyst of this project, uh, my mom passed of lung cancer in 2014. Uh-huh. And so as a technologist and as somebody who really was devastated when this occurred, even though we knew about it years later and we thought we had it beat and it was fine, everything was good, but all of a sudden it came back with a vengeance and it was quick. I was, you know, just... You know, beating myself up and, and thinking, I, I did, what did I miss? How did I not see some things that when my mom was feeling that I could have maybe done something different? And so I um, said, well, how can I use AI, that's 2015, AI into understanding how to deliver better treatments for a very specific non-small mm-hmm. cell lung cancer? Non-small cell lung cancer is the highest, the highest death rates for lung cancer in the non-small cell lung cancer area. I wanted to do something that made that in lung cancer that had the most impact. And so how, would I, how can I use AI to help oncologists develop better treatments? And so I went about with a, a team of folks at my organization, AJ Ribbon Associates, by the way, and I partnered with University of Chicago. We worked with a a practicing oncologist there, mm-hmm. and, and he was uh, very helpful with his, like I said, you need a subject matter expert, with, with his knowledge to right. help us des- design this product. We've got as far as uh, like a, a phase one of it. Over the years, technology, especially AI, has, has evolved. And so now we're taking another phase of this and looking at how we can evolve it to leverage an interface that can that can focus on the corpus of data around non-small cell lung cancer, and so there's many cancer sites. I've I've uh, I'm registered with the National Institute of Health. I get all their uh, information on the uh, weekly basis via email. Constantly looking at and researching uh, non-small cell lung cancer. We have access or understanding of the different ontologies, the the mm-hmm. makeup of uh, the different stages and, and uh, events uh, of non-small, non-small cell lung cancer, how those connections work. And so we leverage that ontology, those ontologies, into a uh, building a knowledge graph in order to understand, when you query the graph, understand how we can gain insights from those relationships. And so what's on top of that now, we're, we're building a large language model leveraging Right now, it's, it, it, it's, it's our first pass at this, so it's 
leveraging the open AI API in our, in our uh, architecture to mm-hmm. query, query this corpus of data we have from clinical trials for non-small cell lung cancer, uh, ontologies on, on, on the relationships between the different types of non, uh, different stages within non-small cell lung, lung cancer and what happens in those stages and marrying those, those things up. We, we also uh, wanted, wanted to incorporate the, uh, the human genome data mm-hmm. as well and look for a way to personalize the, the results because medicine is not only for me, what, what I see is an inexact science, a lot of trial and error, but it's, it, it is a personaliza- personalization of the treatment. Everybody's different. You may fit into some category but within that category, you you may exhibit some very different things based on your genetic right. makeup. And so we want to get get the tool to a place that it can not only do analysis in general to get treatments and, and opportunities for treatment uh, plans and things like that, but also hone it down to the, uh, the individual. We can feed individual data to our corpus of, of data and have our system analyze that. So that's that's been our it's been my kind of quote unquote project. Wow. But that's it's something a, that's that we a chunk. Put, put money into over the years. Yeah, that's a yeah. big and, chunk. And and we we're almost at a point now where we uh, can go after funding for this for this product. We want to get to a point where we can at least demo the product and uh, have some people take a look at it to see the possibilities and possibly funding it wow. or possibly partnering with a a healthcare um, institution and. Going from there because my company we we do consulting, training, and research in the knowledge management and artificial intelligence space. Now mm-hmm. our, our research, uh, you know, leads to other publication, uh, publication, but also lead to other software innovation. Where we don't, my goal is not to to just to be the company that owns the software and have consulting around it, whatever, but to also be able to send this software out as from a subscription point of view or mm-hmm. even having a, a medical institution buy that software for use in, in the masses because we're, we're not a medical institution, right? So, right. But, but we can feel that we can leverage technology like we talked about earlier with AI to enhance and, and be able to help solve these pertinent problems within the healthcare industry, specifically in this case, non-small cell lung cancer. Wow. That's a, pet project. That's a jump uh, for a pet project or a passion project, however you're going to look at it. And speaking as someone who's been impacted passion by- Passion project, by, yeah, that, that's yeah. better. <laughs> but speaking as someone who's been impacted by cancer, albeit not that specific one, uh, and lost family so, to it, it's rough. And you know, one of the things that I look forward to over the next three to five years is that there are a lot of people who are realizing, hey- there's got to be a way I could lever AI to tackle an interesting problem. And they focus on that one problem. And somewhere in the great melee, the great scrum of all these different minds and personalities approaching these problems, maybe from the same direction, maybe from different directions. Right. Somewhere there, we're going to find some solutions that we didn't have before. And that's pretty exciting. And I appreciate that you're a part of that, that great evolution we're going through in that respect. And Tony, I really appreciate you taking the time, carving out the time to chat with me today. I think there's a yeah. lot that you you bring to the table in AI knowledge management. And I would encourage anyone who's interested in, in those fields to look up uh, Dr. Anthony 
Rem on Amazon and pull down his book, his latest book, which is Essential Topics in AI, right? Did I get that correct? I didn't write it down. But yes, yes, sir. But, yep. But it's yes, it's sir. pretty pithy and it's on point. And I've had enough conversations with Tony to know that it's going to be an interesting read. And I look forward to getting a copy myself. Um, and in the meantime, Anthony, again, thanks so much yes. for joining us. Well, you're welcome. And on another note, uh, I'll be speaking about this product and how we developed it at the World Summit AI Americans in, in um, Montreal in, at the end, toward the end of April. Oh, wow. All right. That'll be great. Well, you and I will be talking again soon because you'll need to update me on how that goes. <laughs> uh, yes, sir. And, and let's see where we land. Thanks so much, Tony. You've been listening to Drowning in the Tech Talent Pool. This podcast is sponsored by Sabretooth. Sabretooth improves the quality of hire and speeds up the time to fill specialized machine learning, data engineering, data science, and developer roles, stretching tech recruiting budgets further by bringing the precision of retained search and the speed of contingent search to the market in one complete solution. Find out more at sbr2th.com and follow me, John Light, on LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.